0: What's going on guys? My name is Tom Boley and today we're going to be talking walleye fishing on the Shields podcast. Welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast, your source for information on hunting, fishing, and all of your outdoor passions.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast. My name is Mike Anderson and today we're going to be talking about walleye fishing tactics. So it's kind of that early to midsummer range right now and uh, kind of your post-spawn strategies of that first break line or first piece of structure kind of out the window you know there's still going to be fish there but some have slid deeper some are going to different areas so there's a lot of questions out there right now on where and how to fish for walleyes and thankfully we've got youtube fisherman tom boley with us today if you don't know tom boley or haven't seen his content you're definitely missing out because his youtube channel is absolutely filled with great and easy to digest information So, but thankfully we have them with us today, Tom, thank you for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into fishing and how that turned into filming for YouTube?
0: Yeah. So I started fishing a pretty young age, um, kind of, you know, dad started taking me out fishing, fish with my grandpa, kind of fished, you know, with a whole bunch of people growing up, always knew I wanted to do something fishing related full-time, um, got into guiding for several years and then kind of slowly transitioned that into doing YouTube kind of, you know, watching all these people around, you know, the country turn, you know, fishing into a, a full-time gig on YouTube was kind of number one, a unique way to show people stuff. And, uh, number two, what a great way to kind of travel around fish for what you want to fish for, where you want to fish for it and, uh, upload videos, you know, as a full-time job. So, um, it was, it was definitely a, a lengthy transition, but, uh, I absolutely love doing it. So, yeah, it's always easier when you love doing it.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So did you ever just have that moment between, you know, just fishing to I really want to do this for YouTube and I'm going to jump into it?
0: Um, yeah, it was several years ago. Um, I remember waking up one day in December and I was like, I am going to be a YouTuber <laughs> <laughs> or I'm going to do something in media that lets me kind of do whatever I want to do in the fishing world. And uh, YouTube was kind of the most direct line to that, you know, and that might go somewhere else in the future. Who knows? But uh, um, yeah, it was, and basically for several years, I kind of worked to get to the point where it became a full-time job because it does obviously take a while.
1: Mm-hmm. So, are you are you doing strictly the YouTube stuff now, or are you still guiding and doing the YouTube?
0: No, I've been doing YouTube now for just a couple of years, and uh, I absolutely love it. It takes a lot of the um, stress and not of the job kind of out of it for me and tries, you know, and obviously makes it a lot more fun. I mean, I always get calls all the time. People still want to go fishing, obviously, but I always say you can't be mad at a guy for being able to or wanting to just go fish wherever and whenever he wants. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Um, yep. So what have you noticed have been the biggest adjustments between when you were just fishing for fun versus fishing for the filming aspect of it?
0: Yeah, so fishing for me has kind of been a job for such a long period of kind of most of really my whole adult life. Um, The goal is always, and I get, I don't just love to fish, but I love to work. So I'm constantly kind of doing both at the same time. And it's very difficult for me to, if other people are in the boat um, and, you know, we go to try to have that leisurely, fun fishing day um for uh you know me to kind of get out of the work mode and get back into kind of a a let's go have fun fishing thing um but i I absolutely love to fish still and the goal now is to more so how can we keep it fun uh versus making it just a a very strict guidelines go here get this video go here get this video get this video come back home edit repeat process so (laughs) the goal is always try to you know now that i've kind of more established on YouTube and kind of got, you know, a few more things figured out with how that works out is almost to us more. How can we keep this fun versus just getting, you know, kind of getting that rinse and repeat cycle of just you're constantly consumed by video after video after video.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely, and and you put out content like crazy. I mean, it seems like every time I pull up YouTube, you got a different video, which is awesome, and and yeah. tons of great information. But you know what I really like about your videos is they're they're full of information, easy to understand. But you can tell that you're still like lighthearted out there and having an enjoyable mm-hmm. time and kind of cracking jokes with yourself and stuff like that. So that's yeah. that's pretty cool to see.
0: Yeah, what I always say is you know. Fishing's a strange thing to film because we might roll cameras. We roll cameras live in the boat, generally multiple cameras. So we might roll cameras for 16 hours and then pretty much play back on YouTube a uh, real 30 minutes of fishing, you know, kind of at the climax of that day where we hit the pot of fish at the right time. Everything sets up perfect, but, you know, th- and that's when it's fun. You know, that's when you see the joke in and the <laughs> all the fun parts of fishing. Uh, the kind of behind the scenes would be the other 14 hours of the day where I'm frantically running around staring at a graph, wondering why that fish won't eat and where there's a bigger school of fish. And we always try to incorporate some of that, but um, you know, a lot of that is just due to the fact because I love what I do and I absolutely love to fish, and uh, you know, that m- keeps it a lot more fun in the boat. And I naturally kind of have that high speed, on the go attitude when I'm in a boat or just you know, working at home or whatever. So um, it's generally a pretty up tempo go, 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 go type of deal, especially when we film. So mm-hmm. it's good to hear that some of that translates into, you know, into the videos.
1: Yeah. It seems like you've got a, a pretty good system down now. Can you talk to us a little bit about what your, what your video setup is in the boat? Like I see you're running GoPro chesties and mm-hmm. you know, you generally have a camera on the front of the boat. Like what, what are you doing there for like audio and video and stuff like that?
0: Yeah. And it's crazy which is kind of cool to see i get a million instagram messages every month about you know kids who might be 12 13 or you know adults who are 40 45 years old and they want to know how to film this stuff the hardest part is like i just said like a lot of times you know you're not it's like filming a movie where you don't know the script until it's happening so you have to run cameras pretty much live so we started running um, a lot of the goPros their their film quality is so good that a lot of times it can take the place of a lot of your bulkier cameras that take a lot of work to kind of make them run for 16 or 15 hours at a crack. So we take, you know, generally your better GoPros, your 7.8s, plug them into external power banks, and then we run like big 256 SD cards so we can stream constantly. We always have one going up in the bow of the boat. And then normally I wear a chesty just as a different angle. Sometimes we'll have somebody else in the boat pick up a camera. And then I run all my audio through my GoPro. And GoPros historically have really bad audio like a lot of your kind of action cameras, but there's uh, a couple of different like um, uh, microphone converters you can get for GoPros and then, you know, kind of plug your standard, like lav mic into it. And that's kind of key because I you know how many days do you go out and fish and, you know, especially in North Dakota or something like that, or a lot of your bigger lakes where the wind is just obnoxious and you, there's nothing worse. I can tell you this than spending 20 hours in a boat, getting back home, you're excited to polish up your video and the audio is just scratchy and absolutely awful. So Figuring out a way to get good audio, figuring out a way to run cameras kind of throughout the entire course of the day is kind of the key to, uh, I think, probably capturing a lot of that good content. Because in a world of trying to stand out from a lot of your classic like fishing shows where it's like, oh, you know, fish on, the camera pops up and it's on you. You got to be able to capture before the hook set, during the hook set, after the hook set, you know, because people definitely want to see that versus your just historic fishing show format where it's boom, 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 you know, hook set, hook set, hook set.
1: Yeah, for and sure, and then that that just totally adds to the realism as well. So, yeah. so when you're when you're powering all that stuff, are you running it into like your boat power source?
0: No, I run it off big. Um, I should have some laying around here, but I think they're all in my boat right now. Like big power bricks that you could charge like computers and phones off of for days on end type of things.
1: Okay, gotcha. Yep. And then normally I
0: just tape them right to my camera (laughs) (laughs) stance.
1: There you go. Nice. throw a little duct tape in there. That'll Mm -hmm. save everything for you. So nice when you get all those Instagram questions about, uh, about how you do all your camera stuff, you can just direct them to this podcast.
0: There we go. (laughs) Stay watch the Shields podcast.
1: Perfect. So, you know, you you hinted at it a little bit, but so how do you decide on what you're going to be filming on a daily basis? Is it just, I'm going to go into this today, or do you have like a set plan out weeks in advance? Can you talk to us a little about that?
0: Yeah, I kind of fly by the seat of my pants um, as far as, you know, what exactly I'm going to be filming. Um, I never make travel plans more than a week in advance. So it's all pretty kind of, uh, you know, a lot of times on Sunday night, I'll check the wind, and that'll kind of dictate the days that I go to the bigger bodies of water. Um, A lot of your, you know, like spring fishing, a lot of jig fishing, early summer slip bobbering, spinners, summer crankbaits, lead core, maybe bottom bouncing, uh, your jigging wrap, hyper rattle type stuff. So we can kind of naturally, you know, navigate what videos we're going to do in a month just by the patterns that are out there. You know, we never... I never film anything where it's like, oh, that jig bite's really slow, but I think we can go get a video on it today. I know it's more of a May thing, but we're gonna try to do it in July. That is not at all. But whatever is working best is generally what you see a video on. And we used to shoot a lot of stuff like repetitively. You know, you used to see like if open water trolling cranks was the pattern. We'd go out and we'd film seven of those videos on the same lake because it's just what was happening. You know, and now I'm trying to cut down on a lot of that repetition and maybe the bite's still on crankbaits, but maybe we take it from a 5,000 acre lake. I fish 10 minutes from my house and we would go to, you know, uh, Mille Lacs or a Leech Lake or a Lake Superior thing or a St. Louis River and, you know, show you the same basic pattern, but in different circumstances. So the goal is kind of always keep it fresh and uploading as much as I do. um, You know, keeping it fresh becomes more and more important. It's no longer to me just throw a bunch of darts at a wall and hope some of them stick and people like the content. It's much more like, you know, okay, we showed them this bite doing this. Can we take that bite and show it, show them something that might be more applicable to where they're fishing. So ultimately it is a lot of just realistic what's working best. That kind of drives the direction of my channel. And, uh, you know, we get a a million YouTube questions or comments that are, Hey, go fish here, go fish there. And there's obviously I love fishing new bodies water and it does when the viewer watches me go through the same cycles they're going through. Okay. So in this lake, they're not deep, they're actually shallow. You know, they, they love seeing that kind of part. So, and I love doing that. I absolutely love fishing new water. So it kind of, you know, the course of the season and trying to get new content in different locations kind of drives the direction of the channel for the most part, but there's never a script. There's never a schedule. (laughs) It's just kind of all, you know, look at the weather on Monday, decide what the bite is and go fish somewhere.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, and that's kind of the best way to do it because, like, you know, you can plan going fishing weeks in advance, but like exactly yeah. what you're doing, that's going to be dependent on so many factors: the wind, the weather, pressure. You know, yeah. how long things have been continuous. So, and it's it's been cool to kind of see the uh, the evolution of your content too. Like you said, you you spent a lot of time on local lakes before and now you're kind of branching out to different areas mm-hmm. using kind of the same tactics but uh you know doing it in in different lakes like you said like Mille Lacs. um you know another one was uh Devil's Lake you recently posted a video about that can you kind of walk us through how how things went there
0: yes yeah, so I'd never fished anywhere in in North Dakota and um my dad actually wanted to go out to Devil's so we finally kind of decided uh couple dates to go out there and I was absolutely blown away by the quality of that fishery. I mean it's just incredible. Um and definitely have some return trips in the in the in the plans. But um yeah, it was crazy. You don't it was one of those places that generally I try not to get too into like watching videos or I watch very little videos or footage from any destination I go to because I don't like to be biased generally from what you know, a preconceived notion of what the fish should be doing. A lot of times it's just go out there and look at the graph and look at structure and kind of make your own assumption of what fish are doing. But yeah, we caught the first day we got out there, we started looking at a lot of your kind of typical and my kind of bread and butter lake is generally a deep clear lake and it's got visibility like 10, 15 feet gets like 80 feet deep, a lot of deep rock structure, a lot of weed edge stuff. And, uh, you know, this time of year, a lot of these lakes fish like 15 to 20, 25 feet. We went out there and started looking at some stuff in that depth, and there just wasn't even fish there. Um, And then the first day we were there, went way up shallow into like three, four, five feet of water and just some kind of fringy weeds, and there was eater walleyes everywhere. And uh, they were pretty much biting anything the first day, but snap jigging was definitely kind of a phenomenal way to catch them, and it's just, you know, one of the most fun ways to catch fish. So (laughs) it's easy to want to do that. And then the second days we were there, of course, we got to experience the North Dakota wind for a couple days, which uh, made it kind of tough to fish. But then we found a really good big fish pattern, kind of out in some deeper timber in like 10 to 17 feet of water. And on the last day we were there, we kind of got to really fish that pattern because the wind was down and uh, really did really good on big fish. Um, At least I'm assuming it's good. (laughs) That's how everybody's doing out there. I got to get in my truck and drive right back there right now. I felt like that pot of fish was... Halfway luck and halfway, um, you know, wow, we might have actually figured something else out out here. But yeah, it was another kind of pitching plastics and rattle baits pattern that just right pot of fish at the right time. And we got on them and just caught a bunch of big fish. So phenomenal fishery for sure. I'd say anybody thinking about making the trip out there or just experiencing new different body water, um, you know, or a lot of these guys who used to go to Canada, you know, Devil's Lake is phenomenal fishery.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. Devil's Lake really is a phenomenal fishery. It's yeah. it's one I've been to, you know, a decent amount of times, like yeah. Yeah, maybe 10 times or so. Uh, it's There's so many varieties of ways to fish it. You know, you can go, you know, you can vertical jig by bridges. You can throw shallow water crankbaits next to the trees. You can go find a sunken roadbed. You know, you can, you know, yeah. find shallow areas that, you know, used to be a farmer's field. And now it's like. You know, four foot flats, and it's just it's super wild. That lake's crazy.
0: Yeah, really good body of water, and kind of like a lot of really good fisheries. There's a, like you said, several different ways in which you can target those fish on a given day, which is kind of the fun part about going to places like that. You know, fishing a lot of here, and the way fishing pressure is now on a lot of the bodies of water we fish, it's just so intense that. A lot of times you go to a lake and there's one way that catches fish. And then there's other ways that you might catch a fish on, (laughs) Mm you know, where these really good fisheries that are, you know, fishing really good, generally larger bodies of water and you can go there and, you know, you could slip bobber in a tree. You can pitch jigs in three feet of water. You can pull lead core on a road bed. I mean, that's just kind of as cool as wildlife fishing gets in my mind.
1: Yeah. You you could film about 10 different tips videos in one day there, basically. Hey, I want yeah. to try lead core. Hey, I want to try snap jigging. You know, like you can, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it's,
0: it's nine hours from my house. But besides that,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Tough to make a day trip out of that one. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I'm interested in your snap jigging bite at uh, at Devil's Lake there. So, what what sort of depth were you were you doing that in, and when did you realize like, hey, it's a good time to try this tactic?
0: Yeah, a lot of times it's kind of my first one, just because of how quick it can be uh, that I try, especially on lakes that are generally good quality walleye lakes. Those lakes where, you know, generally larger lakes, um, got a high density of walleyes. Generally, even if, you know, in the feeling out process, you get on a pot of fish and, you know, five to 15 feet of water and you fire a snap, you get them three times and you know, you're in that school of fish. If you don't get bit, you can pretty much say like, well, you know, this is not the exact result we're probably looking for. But at Bite on Devil's Lake, we were fishing anywhere from three feet three feet to seven feet, anything around the weeds, any main lake point that had weeds um, pretty much had fish on it, especially out at where the weed edge was at like seven to eight feet of water. Um, Tons of fish. Those were like all eater sized fish, 15 to 20 inches, very few over 20. And you could literally catch, you know, especially if you had a little bit of wind, you could easily catch a hundred of them a day, you know, doing that pattern with a couple of guys. Uh, The deeper snap jig thing we did uh, was out in like, 10 to 17 feet of water on any kind of big flat or point that had a lot of trees on it. And, um, the farther I started going west in the lake, it seemed like there was getting to be more and more points like that. (laughs) And, uh, they had much larger fish on it. Obviously the difficult part about casting in submerged timber with a jig is you're going to snag a hundred times. And basically there were some spots you could tell had fish and we pulled some spinners through them, but it was so much timber you'd never be able to cast. Then there was other areas where, You could see a big pot of fish that would kind of be on like a high spot surrounded by timber where the fish would be relating to trees, but it wasn't so overwhelming amount of trees in the water where like you couldn't cast a jig to them. And then we just use either the hummingbird mega 360 or side imaging to kind of make very specific casts to those fish versus just spraying casts in a huge field of timber where you're going to lose jigs, you know, every, every other cast. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yes. definitely
1: one thing with that tactic is you want to do like your, your sharpshooting and finding a certain point. Um, you know, one question I have backing it up just a little bit with that, with that snap jinging is, is when do you decide like what depth is right for that? And then you said you're doing it on like weed edges. How do you not get like gummed up with weeds all the time or, or like hitting submerged trees and, and like losing a thousand of these lures? Cause I mean, they're, they're not cheap.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um, the depth range that you do it in generally, once you start getting like twenty-four feet, twenty feet plus, it gets harder to do, and a lot of that's just because um, the angle of your jiggle change a lot. You know, you can fire a bomb cast in thirty feet of water, and your your line angle is still going to be like this. So when you snap that jig, it's more going like this. You always want it to be more of a linear hop versus that, especially when you know, when you're fishing a jig in a plastic. You want that more linear movement as opposed to just kind of an up and down yo-yo. So um, most of the time when I'm firing jigs and plastics and snap jigging like that, you know, 20 feet and less is kind of right there in the ballpark. Uh, 20 feet to, you know, 10 feet of water, you're pretty much talking three ace, maybe a half ounce if you want to fish really fast or three quarter, if you really like speed fishing in clear water, Um, less than 10 feet, most of the time quarter, if you're just going to be pitching like early in the spring, super shallow, like, you know, three feet and less, you know, on some of your stain systems and go all the way down to an eighth sometimes. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a super effective way to fish. I'll say this for a lot of people who don't have a lot of confidence in fishing plastics. Um, the word snap jig is kind of iconic to that because if you're going to work a plastic on a jig, the same way you'd fish a jig in a minnow, you're not going to catch any fish. Being more aggressive with the plastics is what gets you bit on a plastic versus uh, uh, really not getting bit. You don't have to be so aggressive where it's this huge yanking crack all the time on the rod. Um, Generally, when the water is cold, you're fishing a little bit more subtle, but moving that jig faster than you would when you're just fishing a jig in a live bait, Um, you know, working it quicker, making sure it's not just laying on the bottom and you're not just dragging it, doing more of that slight snap, kind of varying on water temperatures will get you a lot more bites on plastics.
1: Okay. And then when you're doing this snap jigging, are you always trying to feel bottom or are you just adjusting the weight of your jig based off of like the depth you're in and assuming you're going to be close to the bottom? How does that dynamic work?
0: Yeah. Sometimes depending on the the bottom you're in, you know, if it's a real hard bottom, gravel, rock, you a lot of times you might feel that jig, you know, land. Uh, Most of the time when you're firing bomb casts, especially if there's any amount of wind, most of the time I'm just watching the line. You know, you snap that jig up and you're waiting for it to fall you know kind of do that crack you're waiting for that line that bait to hit bottom again second it hits bottom your line naturally bows out so a lot of times i'm just sight watching the line um as opposed to you know kind of trying to make sure you're feeling bottom but hitting bottom every time is definitely a key piece um to the equation for sure
1: okay sounds good um you know like with with the snap jigging stuff like you have to have like some great confidence in your electronics. So can you, can you talk about how you like developed a confidence in doing this? Like we we talked about sharp shooting a little bit, like how, how do you develop an accuracy level and know that, okay, this is, I'm doing it correctly.
0: Yeah. So kind of when I started fishing was kind of when side imaging was just kind of coming onto the scene and it was kind of at the point where it didn't really read fish that well. Um, you know, 2D sonar, down imaging, those have kind of always read fish and they're just kind of continually getting better. But when you start making the connection between, you know, I would say just go out there and cast something you have confidence in at what you think are fish over and over and over. And then, you know, when you make that connection between seeing a pot of fish on side imaging or sonar or down imaging, putting a bait in those fish's face and then catching one, you're like, okay, you know, this is what it should be. You know, I saw where those fish are. I made the cast to them. I thought they were fish and I caught a walleye in the first two snaps. So, like these are fish. Um, the other thing you can do if you're a clear water, or if you fish a lot of clear water is just go out and drive around and get an underwater camera. And this is one of the first things I ever did. You know, I had waypoint everything because <laughs> I had no idea what I was looking at at waypoint rocks, cribs, what I thought were fish. And then I just go and, spend days, you know, just looking at stuff in the underwater camera. And after a while, you're like, okay, you know, these are fish. These are rocks. That's a crib. That's a weed edge. These are fish relating to a rock to sand transition. And it, you know, there's, if you're trying to get into this kind of forward walleye fishing or really any kind of fish in the direction it's going where, you know, you can't, if you want to be as effective and as efficient as possible and ultimately catch more fish, there's no denying, um, you know, the use of all the technology that's out now. And I'd get in the boat with, you know, the best guide in your area or, you know, the lake you fish the most, whether you're a you know, North Dakota guy, a Minnesota guy, get on that body of water, you fish the most, go out with a guy, you know, a good guide and just say, Hey, I want to see, I want you to point out every school of fish to me that we're going to fish today. And, you know, ask a lot of questions and any good guide will be able to show you, Hey, this is fish sitting on a weed edge or, you know, this is a pod of about 15 walleye see how they're arced up a little bit more. So, and then obviously spending the time in the boat by yourself, learning it after you've been out with a guy like that um, is a good way to do it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no substitute for, you know, seat time in the boat. You know, you can yeah. you can watch as much YouTube as you can, but, you know, really to, to get out and fully learn it, you, you got to go out and try it. You know, you can't, you're not going to succeed immediately right away. I mean, you know, some will a little bit here and there, but yeah, that's that's definitely the way to do it.
0: Yeah, and then the biggest thing, you know, once you get used to seeing what you're seeing is kind of envisioning that where it is around your boat. You know, it looks really easy when you watch, you know, a YouTube video of us putting down a a weed edge and firing one cast of the slip bobber to a pot of fish and catching it. But it's a lot more difficult when you're trying to envision where those fish are. You know, it's easy, especially when you first start doing this is to see a pot of fish and then look up from your graph and you're like, you know, the whole lake's around you and you're like, I don't know where those fish are. <laughs> you can waypoint them is a good way to do it to kind of get used to seeing them. But when you start to kind of drawing those conclusions between there's the fish 50 feet off my right right here, I waypointed them, now I have continued to go. Now if I circle back, those fish should be right here. You know, so doing things like that is kind of good exercise to kind of make you aware of right where those fish are and then boat control to kind of go back and get on top of those fish.
1: Okay, so what sort of level of accuracy do you think you need to be at between, you know, okay, I think I see these fish to actually like casting on them and, and connecting. Have, have you noticed anything there?
0: As far as how close feet wise, I mean, in some really clear bodies of water, I mean, fish will come a really long ways to eat a bait. Um, you know, if you're fishing for negative or neutral fish, sometimes it takes multiple casts right, you know, a foot away from the fish. So, you know, and the more any of us do this kind of the more precise and accurate we get and the more tools that come along. Um, I mean, before like hummingbirds mega 360, you would go by the fish and then they'd just kind of be somewhere, you know, they'd be somewhere by you and you knew they were off your right side. Now with 360, you know, you go by them, you see them on the side imaging, you look at your 360 and you can see those fish, you know, slowly shift to the back of the boat. So we're kind of all always getting better at that and with technology kind of making it bridging a lot of the voids where you couldn't see before. Um, definitely helps out a lot as well
1: Mm -hmm. that makes sense so how about the people out there listening that you know don't have access to the latest and greatest electronics like don't have 360 um, you know don't even have side imaging maybe they just have down imaging what would what would your advice be for people that want to try your tactics but but only have simple electronics
0: yeah and we were all there at one point so I can remember back when, you know, before side imaging was reliable, you know, the way we would fish a lot of stuff and it was a lot more driving around, a lot more crisscrossing structures. You might spend a little bit more time to start your day. Let's go, let's say it's, you know, early June or let's say it's right now where we're fishing a lot of this, you know, midsummer patterns now. Fish are generally a little bit deeper this time of year. They're generally on point extensions or humps and, you know, that 15 plus foot range. And it's one of the best times of year to just use sonar or down imaging, you know, you're down viewing, stuff and uh you know you're gonna find a piece of structure that fits that kind of depth description go out to it and you're gonna start zigzagging it because you're not reading side to side you're reading straight down in a cone so zigzag that piece of structure and if you see you know four or five big red hooks a foot off bottom you can be assured that there's probably a lot more than those four to five big hooks right off bottom um, that are there because you're only picking up whatever is in that cone right below your boat so you know when you're sea fish you know have confidence that there's more there um, kind of getting tuned with, you know, what depth, you know, the kind of the natural progression of fish We're in the spring, generally they're very shallow in the summer they move deeper in the fall. Some fish can be deep and some fish come back very shallow, kind of get accustomed to that natural progression that happens on most bodies of water. And then, uh, you know, when you find, learn of those kind of depth zones that fish are in do a lot of zigzagging on your structure to kind of locate fish.
1: Okay. That makes sense. So question I have for you on structure, whether it's uh you know, how do you know what parts of structure to fish, whether it's a point or an inside turn or an outside turn or like a side of a hump? Like, where do you figure out where to start?
0: Yeah, I'm very uh, basic in that approach as I use my electronics so much that I just, you know, have 100% faith in what I'm seeing or what I'm not seeing. So, you know, if, you're, if you cover five great pieces of structure, you know, this time of year, let's say, and you're looking a lot in seven to 12 feet of water and you're just not seeing anything on a point, a hump, an inside turn, a weed edge, then you can pretty much be sure there's three structural elements right there in a depth zone. If you look at all three of them and there's not fish there, there's probably not fish in 10 feet of water. If all those spots are, you know, 10, 15 feet of water. And then it's time to generally speaking this time of year, go deeper. So then, you know, and, and the more you do it, the more, a lot of this stuff will pop out at you. You know, if you have a huge piece of structure, a huge hump in the middle of the lake, a huge point complex, um, the sweet spots, will start to pop out you. And a lot of times that might be that huge hump out in the middle. That's basically shaped like a circle, but on the top might be 15 it might drop out to 30 feet in the base. And it's generally pretty steep breaks on all sides. And then on one end of it, you have a tail that runs out with a spine on it. That kind of covers multiple depth zones. And a lot of times, those little sweet spots are something that the more you look at a map and the more you drive around, it'll really start popping out at you. But a lot of times it's, if, like I said, if you have a huge piece of structure like that, looking at a map and saying, that's the most unique corner of this whole piece of structure, we're going to go look at that. A lot of times if there's fish anywhere on that flat, they're going to be on that one unique characteristic. So that's kind of how a lot of times you can shorten the curve um, to basically find fish quicker, especially on lakes that have a lot of big structure.
1: Okay, that makes sense. So if you were to put it into a percentage, like what percentage would you say you spend driving around versus actively fishing?
0: Yeah, it kind of all depends on the body of water I'm on and the time of year. Um, If, you know, these lakes that I know really, really well around kind of my area, kind of my bread and butter lakes, that might be a five minute process. You know, if I go to Malax, we just came back from Malax the other day and, you know, we were doing a power slip bobbering pattern, which is you're just driving around looking for fish. Then you kind of know the general areas fish are, but you might end up driving for 95% of the day and fishing for 5% of the day. Cause that's a very quick, like boom, boom type of technique. Um, we just fished a new body of water uh this week, which unfortunately there won't be any videos on because we didn't crush them good enough. But um I drove around for probably four hours uh the other morning before really even fishing. Um and this time of year you can kind of bridge a lot of those gaps by a lot of times you're fishing deeper water this time of year and a lot of it's kind of similarly depth. So I just spent a lot of it just trolling um keeping my baits way up off the bottom just kind of looking for fish. And, uh, you know, maybe you catch a few fish that way and you locate kind of several sweet spots where the fish are and then go back and target them a different way. But it all kind of depends on what body of water I'm on, what time of year it is and stuff like that. But don't be if you're not catching if you spent two days on your summer vacation to Lake XYZ and, you know, you haven't caught more than a couple of fish in a three day span. Don't be afraid to just drive around for eight hours and look, <laughs> you know, don't mm-hmm. don't feel embarrassed by doing that. That's what everybody does
1: yeah for sure you know if if they're not in the area you're you're fishing at you gotta move around you gotta keep searching trying new tactics that's that's definitely one thing I've learned over the past few years is is to not be afraid to try new things and don't be afraid to drive around because you know you can't catch fish when you don't have a line in the water, but you also can't catch fish when they're not there, so yep. don't be afraid to drive around a little bit and wait until you like start marking things
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's always the tough thing. You know, a lot of times midsummer you're dealing with fish that are very scattered out and spread out on a lot of bodies of water. So you might not be looking at that that holy grail shot we all want to see where the hummingbirds just 100 arcs on top of each other. You know, it might be a three fish here and a three fish here and a four fish over there, and you're trying to figure out how to connect the dots to catch those fish effectively. So, yeah, I mean, driving around is always, always part of it
1: hmm for sure so you you'd mentioned a little bit earlier that power slip bobber stuff and and i i watched that video and i find it super fascinating for the people that haven't seen that yet can you walk us a little through that process
0: yeah it's a cool technique it's kind of like you know sharpshooting and you know doing all this kind of s- speed fishing and basically it seems very if you're not used to it, it seems like a, a very yeah this is never going to work type of thing because you're just driving around like I said, right now it's midsummer, So a lot of us are talking about on our lakes, we're fishing for fish that are 15 feet deeper, which is kind of what you need to fish this pattern. Um, so you can mark those fish on sonar. The shallower you get, generally less than 15 feet. Those fish don't often come up off bottom enough where you can see them on sonar. But basically the way power corking or power slip barring the way it works is you're driving around, sonar down imaging on. We were on the mud flats out on Mille Lac. So a lot of the water you're fishing is 23 to 30. And you're just looking for several arcs on top of each other. And the second those arcs, you know, generally we're going about a couple miles an hour and you'll see those arcs start to come up. They'll turn red in real time on your sonar. And that's when you, if you'll drop your bobber right in the prop wash and you wait. That's you weight, your bobber super heavy, generally like a half ounce weight, um, big bobber on there, heavy jig on there, something that just fires right down to the fish immediately. And uh, you can take, and basically count to, you know, if a minute goes by and you don't get bit, just reel up and go on to the next pot. And a lot of times we're only waiting. if all three of our bobbers or just my bobber is sitting there on that, that arc for 30 seconds, I'm reeling up and I'm just going on to another fish or another pot of fish or or so on and so forth, just kind of a rinse and repeat. But that's another technique where the trolling motor stowed, you're just driving around with the big motor all day, you know, in gear shifting it neutral when you see them drop your bait, Wait 30 seconds. So you're either gonna catch a fish or you're not, and then rinse and repeat and keep going on.
1: Yeah, that's that's something I definitely want to try out because it seems like a super interesting tactic. And you know, like I've slip rubber fish for walleyes, but it generally it's like six foot on a weed line or whatever, not 25 and marking mm-hmm. and dropping. So how do you how do you determine when to do the like the slip bob or the power corking versus like your sharp shooting with a with a snap jig or a jig in plastic. Is it sort of a depth thing or, or what do you think in there?
0: Yeah, generally they're both kind of deeper water presentations. So they're kind of interchangeable. One day they might prefer one or the other. When we filmed that video last week, we actually went out to film a lead core video and they just were not eating crankbaits. <laughs> and it got real flat out and there was a mayfly hatch going on. So a slip bobber and a leech is just something that generally works good during a mayfly hatch. And that was kind of the first thing we landed on. Now I'm sure you could have put on a hyper rattle, a jig and wrap, a shiver minnow, dropped it into those fish and probably caught some of them, maybe done better, maybe done worse. We just didn't quite, we didn't get to that step of the process where it was like, is this better than this type of thing? We kind of landed on the power slip bobber thing. Uh, it was working really good. So we just kind of kept doing it. But a lot of times the way you fish those two presentations is very the same. They're just on the opposite end of the spectrum. You got the power slip bobber, which is just a presentation that sits there in the fish's face. And then you got your Acme Hyper Rattles, wrap Shiver Minnows, you're dropping down and actively just cracking the rod so Mm -hmm. they are very different Um, one might not be better than the other if fish are biting neutral or negative Um, but there's definitely times and place where one can be better than the other
1: yeah for sure that seems like uh the sort of situation where in north dakota or other states where you can have multiple rods Like you, you get going, you mark that fish and you drop your, drop your bobber down and then you let that guy sit and you go grab your, your snap jig in one. And then you just kind of cast around it in waves.
0: Yeah. And it's not a type of fishing where there's a lot of waiting involved. So generally, you know, if you were to do this for each of them for an hour, you would know pretty quick, you know, or each of them for three drops, even you'd probably know pretty quick, which one they were, they were eating better.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely. It's it's kind of a good good tactic for the fisherman with A D D or can't just like sit there forever. It's you're you're pretty yeah. active and you and you're really, really intimate with it.
0: Yeah, if you're getting tired of watching your bottom bouncer rot all day, go to something like that where you're just actively hunting pods of fish and it is a lot of fun. It actually makes the day just fly by. You know, not to say you couldn't get out on a mud flat on Mille lax right now and drift a Lindy Rig and catch just as many fish, but um, it is definitely a very different very efficient way to get on top of fish
1: Mm-hmm. for sure ton of fun to learn so we're uh you know we're in like that early to mid-summer time as you mentioned like they're they're off of that post-spawn bite they're kind of moving off into you know deeper areas obviously some fish stay shallow but um what are what are some of your favorite tactics to do right now maybe give me like a like a top five you got
0: yeah so generally when fish start pulling off and you know Get into some of this deeper water. Um, you know, the power slip bobber, like we talked about, super efficient. That'll kind of start fading out as the summer goes on. For whatever reason, it doesn't seem like they like to eat those kind of stagnant slip bobbery presentations, you know, into August as much. Um your snap baits, your hyper rattles, jig and wrap shiver minnows, like we talked about, great way to cover a lot of deep water, great way to uh, you know, fish fish that are just vertical too on that kind of presentation. Um, and then trolling, trolling is obviously a huge summer pattern as well, pretty much everywhere you're going to go. And a lot of times that's, uh, crankbaits, either long lining them or lead corn them or, uh, bottom bouncers or snap weighting spinner rigs. Um, so kind of, you know, most of my summer is generally broken up into pulling spinners, pulling crankbaits or slip bobber fishing or speed jigging deep. Um, I don't do a lot of like half ounce jig, half a crawler in, 30 feet of water. Um, for some reason, that one has just never, never been my go-to pattern. <laughs> it's, pre- it probably works plenty of places, but it has just not been my most time fishing in the summer. It's like I said, one of those kind of four presentations.
1: Okay. So when do you decide between wanting to use like a crankbait or a heavy bottom bouncer and spinner in your, in your troll and stuff?
0: Yeah, it kind of conditionally, um, and there's always exceptions, you know, fishing's the game of exceptions, but, um, you know, a lot of times like right now where it seems like everywhere you go has a huge mayfly hatch, a lot of times that, uh, is a better spinner rig bite, or you can think of a spinner going through the water. It's just kind of this wispy, you know, real natural looking thing. And the fish, you know, staring up at it. It's much, they're much more keyed into that kind of stuff when mayfly hatches are generally going on. Now, if you get some wind, you know, you feel like, oh yeah, things are right out here. Um, a lot of times, it, you know, it'll turn into a crankbait bite. And the great thing about pulling crankbaits, the biggest advantage over pulling spinners is you can cover, like, twice the amount of water in the same amount of time. So, because generally you're going, like, twice as fast. And a lot of times pulling crankbaits in the summer is pretty much going to be one of your best big fish bites everywhere. And like I said, kind of the, the game of ex- exceptions, so to say. Um, the flat, calm crankbait bite can be one of the best, you know, I troll a ton of open water suspended fish where I fish um, right around here in my house, in my home area. So we might have a lake that the whole basin's like 40 to hundred feet deep. And we're just sticking baits down 20 to 25 and trolling the basin for fish that are, you know, 40, 50, 60 feet off the bottom, kind of depending on where we're fishing. So, um, that's a bite that is generally really good for crankbaits and often is the biggest fish in the lake too. So, um, it kind of goes both ways. You know, if you're if you're fishing a really small spot, generally that's almost always going to be a spinner rig situation. Crankbaits, most time fishing them. It's really big areas of similar depth stuff, and uh, pulling fast over it.
1: Okay, great information. So, you know, you covered some stuff people like may not have tried before. Like, how do you, how do you recommend building confidence in these setups?
0: Yeah, I can remember when I started trolling open water for suspended fish. I was like, there's no, there's, not, there's no way there's fish out here, right? How are you ever going to find the needle in a haystack 20 to, you know, and in, in your mind it's just the open abyss at that point in time until you start doing it. Um, but, you know, just know that all this, all this stuff does work. It might not work on your lake that you're fishing today, but it works somewhere else. And it's just kind of a slow process. I mean, you can gather all the information you want about depths and things like that. Um, but really just going out and doing it and giving it a, a fair shot. And a lot of times with fishing, obviously there's always the common denominator of, well, that, you know, there's no fish there or they don't bite this when in reality, it might just be a bad day. The number of that happened, the number of times that I'm in that situation is, you know, endless times, but, um, it, you just got to try stuff, honestly. I mean, the learning curve is always very slow. And then you'll look back at yourself three years ago and be like, remember when we didn't even know that bite existed? <laughs> so it's just time in a boat and doing it kind of over and over and over. And then once you start catching fish on it, then it's a lot of times tweaking in those smaller things over the next, you know, six months or that season in the next season where you really kind of start making things really efficient. Mm-hmm. And especially with trolling, you know, in a, in a state where you can run multiple lines, um, you know, you get one depth right on one rod in your spread and you got three buddies with, so you got X, you know, however many more lines out. And their lines are kind of all over the place. So when you get the same pattern going on all six rods or nine rods, um, then, you know, it's obviously nine times as good as it was when you just had one rod fishing efficiently.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one thing I found with trying new tactics is, you, you know, if it doesn't work once, you don't immediately write it off. You know, like maybe you had two of three factors, right, but then one thing was wrong. Maybe like... gap was wrong or a color or, you know, they just didn't like one thing that day. And you try the, try the same tactic the next day and you absolutely crush them. So, you know, don't be afraid to give it, give it a few tries anyways. So, um, you know, what has been, what has been one thing that you've, that you've really learned over the past year that is, that has helped your fishing?
0: Um, a lot of it is just kind of drawing the relationship between bodies of water. Um, you know, whether that's a a shallow flowage system that I might fish around here or a deep clear lake, I might fish in Northern Minnesota or, you know, a a lake like Devils in North Dakota is just a lot of these, the same things go on in every body of water. The specifics of that might be different. So, you know, if fish are generally on a weed edge here, you know, in June, they're probably going to be relating to a weed edge there or a similar depth zone on this lake. So it's kind of drawing a lot of those connections between lake to lake and just seasonal movements of fish that really make getting on fish, especially on new bodies of water, a much quicker process overall. And then obviously the electronic side of it, you know, it seems like something new comes out every year, but kind of, you know, using that to like what I just talked about where, you know, a fisher on a weed edge, we used to fish side imaging. Now we use 360 and it's more efficient. Um, It kind of makes the whole process of getting on fish much easier. Catching them may be a whole different, you know, argument depending on where you're at, but um, a lot of different ways to catch walleyes. But, uh, you know, drawing those connections between the similarities in different bodies of water and how they fish um, is definitely kind of the biggest thing that the more I fish, the more I see happen kind of over and over
1: mm-hmm okay have you had a chance to play around with uh with the new hummingbird live 360 imaging yet
0: i have not yet i have used panoptics and live scope plenty of times um and i can definitely see where there will be niches where it will be a game changer and that's kind of like any tool where you know you take sonar you know sonar has been around forever and you know down imaging keeps getting crisper and you know you take sonar and you drive around at five feet of water and it just doesn't it doesn't look good there, you know, mm-hmm. where it's cool, you know, generally used for deeper water where each piece of electronics is a tool. And I can definitely see where, when the live comes out, where that will be a kind of a game changer in those certain areas.
1: So w- which certain areas would you, or tactics that you like to do, would you consider they're probably going to be game changing?
0: Especially if you're fishing isolated targets. Um, like if you're fishing a, you know, or a big rock pile, and there's a knob on the end of it with three big boulders. Pointing it at those and watching those fish move around it, um, a situation where you're actively hunting low numbers of fish on a flat, those type of things, where generally it's going to revolve around a, a very targety type of routine. Now, if you're trolling a massive flat where fish are very very scattered, and uh, you know generally a trolling application, you know probably not going to be where that thing shines. Um, one kind of cool thing that's happening, like in northern Minnesota right now, kind of to jump out to a lot of the, the way musky guys are using a lot of this kind of same type of technology, is uh, when fish are out in the basin. And obviously, musky fishing in low-number game. If you're catching one to three fish a day, you're doing really good. But generally, in this early summer time frame or post-spawn, a lot of these muskies go out and they sit 10, 20, 30, 40 feet down over you know, 80, 90, 100 feet of water, whatever it is. And guys are just actively driving around right now, looking for those fish on the live scope on the same kind of, you know, directional facing sonar. And, uh, that's how they're finding the fish and that's how they're catching them. So it's taken a pattern that used to be a needle in a haystack and has turned it into just drive around, look for them and then watch your bait go down to them. So, <laughs> you know, it's things like that where you just could never do it with sonar or down imaging or side imaging.
1: Yeah. But it's kind of just open, opening us to a whole new world of tactics.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I always, we always, I always kind of talk about, uh, you know, like a lot of the, your live scope stuff, seeing a fish eat a bait is always cool. You know, using it, ice fishing and watching that fish creep in and coming over to eat your bait. That's cool. That's the thing that is cool to watch happen. But is it, you know, did that catch you the fish or not? You know, could you, if that fish came in and you saw it on your standard $200 flasher, you would have still seen the fish come up and you still would have seen a bite. He wouldn't have looked like a fish. He would have looked like a red mark on your flasher Um, so it's, it's finding the areas where it's not just, this is cool to watch, but Hey, this opens up this opportunity that we didn't have before, which is kind of going to be where, you know, just getting it in your hands and playing with it for a year is really going to kind of, we'll see what happens, I guess.
1: Yeah, definitely. You kind of, kind of hit the nail on the head there where like when fish are right next to you, like that live scope or you know active target whatever brand you got like Mm -hmm. it's not game changing there when it when it's in a cone where you can see it but it's like the search phase that's where that's where those ones you know really shine
0: yeah and seeing how they interact with the bait i mean that's kind of the other side of the argument too i think
1: Mm -hmm. definitely so um you know let's uh, i just want to do a couple random questions here for you now so um If you could only do one for the rest of your life, are you picking open water fishing or ice fishing?
0: I I love to ice fish, but I, I always watch the forums and stuff like that online. And there'll be people in July talking about ice fishing and no disrespect to them, but I have no idea if they've ever been in a boat in a July evening catching walleyes or muskies or anything like that. It just seems far too enjoyable for me to ever wish I was only on the ice my whole life, (laughs) (laughs) but definitely open water.
1: Okay. Fair enough. Um, what is a bucket list fishery for you?
0: Um, I would love to go out farther West at some point, Fort Peck's kind of one that is just, Always, you know, I feel like we're always talking about Fort Peck. Oh, my gosh, you can jig lakers, huge walleyes, pike. There's just so much going on there. Um, it just seems like a really cool body of water where one day we'll start making it out there. But uh, I don't, couldn't tell you when that's going to be yet. Hmm. Okay.
1: Say say walleyes did not exist. What species would you be targeting?
0: Um, probably lake trout. Um, I do a lot of lake trout fishing. In my early years, I used to do a ton of musky fishing um, which kind of got burned out on that a little bit, but I absolutely love, uh, Lake trout fishing. And, you know, in an hour and a half, I can be on Lake Superior from my house and we go up there as much as we can. And I absolutely love fishing Lake trout.
1: Very cool. All right. So we, so we've covered some awesome information so far, just like, I'm, I'm going to have to go back and watch this a bunch of times and absorb all this stuff. But, um, you know, just, uh, I'd like to end it here on something a little bit lighter. So what, uh, What is your craziest fishing experience you've had?
0: Uh, Craziest fishing experiences. I guess there's a couple of them. Uh, Just crazy stuff that's happened in the boat over the years. Um, There's one time we actually, I can't confirm if we actually got struck by lightning, but um, I was dropping a bunch of guys off as there was a big storm coming in. And, uh, you know, we were getting the whole floaty line effect coming in. It was one of these hot, tropical, humid, humid, pop-up thunderstorm type of days. So we all had our line floating, and one day, you know, we're like, all right, we got to get out of here now. uh, So dropped the guys off, driving all the way back across the lake, and it was kind of right at that sundown window, so I got my light pole in the back of my boat, and all of a sudden it was the loudest, fastest, you know, you can see like the flash strike of lightning I've ever seen in my life, and just snap, boom, you can just hear it, you know, like it's on top of you. And uh, my motor actually – turned off. And I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, we just got actually struck by lightning. No way. Right. It shorted out every fuse um, that was under, under load at that time in the boat, like your, you know, your accessory panels, the radio fuse, your big 40 amp. I think Evan at the time had like a 40 or a 50 amp in the motor. They literally all shorted out in the boat at the same time. And obviously (laughs) should not be on the water. If your line is floating, and, uh, but it definitely was a good, put it in perspective as far as, you know, time to get out of here. You know, there's no playing around with lightning or a lot of these flash storms, you know, like that anymore. Um, kind of another, from a different type of story. Um, uh, one of the craziest, you know, fishing stories we we're actually in green Bay one spring. And it was me and a couple of buddies, and there was just a massive, massive snowstorm coming in. And we were, you know, 40 mile an hour winds. And Green Bay, if you've ever been there, experienced it in the spring, it's just insane with people. And we're like, oh, there's no shot in fishing today, 40 mile an hour wind out of the north. Well, we drove down to launch, and everybody else knew that there wasn't a shot of fishing that day either. So there was nobody there. And it was like eye of the winter storm. The lake laid down flat, or pretty flat for Green Bay. And uh, we went out and in an afternoon we caught like, it was like seven or eight fish um, over 10 pounds and like out of one pot of fish. I mean, how many other, you know, eight pound fish and seven, it was just endless huge walleyes for hours. It was one of the most insane schools of big fish that I've ever seen and caught at one time with no boats anywhere within miles and miles of me so that was kind of as far as being in a boat and just like a oh, wow that was we might not ever live something like this again um, that was one of those trips for sure one of those afternoons for sure.
1: Oh yeah that's one of those ones you never forget about and and you have that on on one of your videos too don't you
0: i I can't remember if we I don't think we actually filmed that day because if I remember correctly I was there normally I spent two months in Green Bay and it was one of my last days I was there. And we didn't even think we were going to film. So I actually think I left everything in the truck. And then I want to say like halfway through, we went back and got the camera, filmed some stuff, and then left. And then Green Bay literally got like 25 inches of snow that night. And I got stuck in it on my way home. But I think bits and pieces of it ended up on YouTube, but not like the whole entirety of it. (laughs) But sometimes you just got to have some fun without the camera, too.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. So do you get to spend much time fishing just for fun or is a majority of it camera stuff?
0: Yeah, it, it, I'm trying to do more just for fun now. Now a lot of the goal of the job is to how can we keep this remaining fun? Cause the second it doesn't become fun, it's a lot harder to turn the camera on every day and talk to it when you're you know by yourself, trying to fabricate the excitement that you're going to have, you know? Um, so now I, tr- I never used to go filming or fishing without the camera probably for the last year and a half. Now I go fishing to a lot of new places. I might spend a day there kind of figuring stuff out and then turn the camera on. And then I'm excited to, like, share what I have. You know, it's not like uh, knowing you have something in the bag and going out and executing it is always less fun than just, uh, you know, shooting stuff on the fly.
1: Okay, that makes sense. So uh, what, what can we expect from you next?
0: Yeah. I'm always open to suggestions. Like I said, I want to keep this going in whatever direction people want to see. Um, I like the new lakes doing different stuff type of things. Um, We're going to try to weed out a lot of the just kind of repetition in videos and uh, which will unfortunately mean less videos, but it should mean higher quality videos and longer running videos uh, when we do post. So, you know, if you've been following me for the last couple of years and you're like, why isn't this guy uploading five to seven times a week anymore? That's the reason why. So hopefully you guys think the content's um, more upscale than it was last year. And hopefully, you know, next year we're saying the same thing about this year. Mm-hmm.
1: There we go. Quality over quantity. Yep. So great to hear. Um, you know, for those people that don't follow you yet, what's, uh, what sort of social media channels are you on?
0: Yeah, I'm on Facebook, um, Instagram, and YouTube. I don't post a lot on Facebook anymore. But um, if you kind of want to, you know, YouTube's obviously my primary platform that I'm on. Um, so just Tom Boley on YouTube, subscribe, hit the bell, get notified. You can pretty much expect generally multiple videos going up every week and throw some comments down there. You know, if you're a Metro Minnesota guy, you know, that's always something we like seeing is normally if we get message after message after message of someone saying, come here and try to figure out the walleyes, generally we do. So (laughs) (laughs) um, get on there, interact and yeah, I appreciate it.
1: There you go. Perfect. You're going to, you're going to notice in influx of comments from a mike anderson out there saying come fish by the by (laughs) the fargo detroit lakes area (laughs) i got the i got this lake with a cabin you need to you need to figure out this lake
0: (laughs) sounds good i'll look for him
1: oh perfect well tom thank you so much for your time and information it's been great so uh best of luck fishing here
0: yeah thank you thank you guys for having me
1: you just heard our conversation with Tom Boley on early to midsummer walleye tactics. Now, we covered a lot of these in higher detail, so if you want the full story, you can head to his YouTube channel, uh, subscribe to that, and you're going to get a lot of that stuff in greater, greater detail. Another great place to find a ton of tips on fishing, hunting, basically anything outdoors is our Shields Outdoors YouTube channel. Also our social media pages, Shields Outdoors on Facebook and Instagram. So if you're not subscribed to all those channels and want future content, make sure to go ahead and do that. So hopefully you enjoyed what you heard today. If you need any fishing lures, rods, reels, Shields is always there to help you. You can visit us in store at your local store or visit us online at shields.com. And with that... We'd like to thank you all for listening and see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Shields Outdoors podcast. Stay tuned for future segments and visit our social media pages, Shields Outdoors, on Facebook and Instagram for daily updates.